Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Brought to you by the Naked Scientists. The Cambridge Science Festival podcast. Hello and welcome to this special podcast from the Cambridge Science Festival with me, Mira Senthilingam from thenakedscientist.com. There's a whole variety of events going on over the next 10 days and so we're here to bring you the highlights. Coming up on today's podcast, we learn about the effects of testosterone on the human mind. We find out about a big experiment taking place in East London to get teenagers excited about science. And we find out the answer to this. Is it true that the moon is gradually moving further away from the Earth? And if so, what effect will that have? All that to come in this edition of the Cambridge Science Festival podcast. But first, we visit the Cambridge University Botanic Gardens, where an event is taking place over the next week to get us all thinking about climate change and a natural way to reduce carbon levels in our atmosphere. I went along to the garden's greenhouses to meet Dr Derek Bendel and Dr Beershlaub Ridley to find out what they're doing. Well, we, have, we can show you about the use of algae as potential sources of biofuels and as a means of capturing carbon dioxide from power stations, for example. So these are quite versatile organisms. They're essentially green plants, so they grow like a green plant. They, that is uh, photosynthetic organisms. They require light to grow. They require carbon dioxide. And in addition, they just need simple minerals as a source of food. We've got a bioreactor in front of us here. What's happening in there? Yes, well, in this bioreactor, it's just a thin layer of solution in which as the green algal cells are suspended... Through it, there is a supply of gas carbon dioxide being bubbled to help the algal cells to grow. So this is a a green suspension bubbling away quite nicely, and the suspension will go quite a dark green uh, fairly rapidly in the course of a few days. So um, the carbon dioxide bubbling through is causing the algae to grow, and so in that way it's using up carbon dioxide, but then because it's growing faster, you're getting more algae, so you can make more fuel from it. Yes, the algae can be used to generate uh, various kinds of fuel, partly because you can use any kind of biomass to do this, or in particular because the right kind of algae, the right strain of algae, can produce um, oils or hydrocarbons, which can be used more or less directly as sources of fuel. Other than the bioreactor that we have here, there's quite a few other things for visitors to see. So what else is here, Bea? Visitors are invited to uh, fill in a questionnaire to uh, measure their own personal carbon footprint and also to engage in a conversation about the practical ways how each one of us can try to reduce our energy expenditure and therefore help to make the problem a smaller one. 
We as scientists are trying to work hard to improve the yields uh, and make biofuels more efficient, but we wouldn't like to create the impression that there are quick technical fixes available for our energy consumption and the impending climate crisis. What kind of things do you ask when they're they're measuring their carbon footprint? Well, there's roughly four different categories where our carbon footprint comes from, and that is the housing, so heating and hot hot water, things like that, Um, transport, car, air travel and things like that. Then there's the food which um, is often quite surprising to people and about a quarter of our carbon footprint lies in food. And then there's general consumption, things we buy with the money we have, iPods and computers, things like that. In addition there is what the government spends on our behalf for roads, schools, hospitals and so on. So that doesn't vary between individuals but the first four categories do. That was Derek Bendel and Biashlab Ridley from the University of Cambridge. And their pond slime and carbon capture display is running until Sunday, the 16th of March, so you can head to the Botanic Gardens to see it for yourself. Now, the festival is in its 15th year, and so has a wealth of great speakers to invite back. So naked scientist Ben Valsler went to see festival regular Pete Wothers from the University of Cambridge to find out about an interesting experiment. Last year, Pete Withers was a big success with his It's a Gas lecture, but this year he has his own big experiment to talk about, as well as some free-range chemistry. So, Pete, what's the big experiment? OK, well, this is a, a TV programme that we've just made where we went into a school in the Docklands area in London and we were trying to get a, a group of, um, well, let's say, unenthusiastic teenagers, trying to inspire them to gain an interest in science. And did it work? Well, I think you'll have to watch the final episodes to see uh, how successful we were. But um, I think I think we've, we've uh, changed things around a bit. I mean, we've given them uh, open their eyes to different possibilities and things. So I think that's uh, yeah, you could say it's a success. Yes. But in terms of their exams, I mean, they actually were sitting part of their GCSE exams uh, eighteen months early. Uh, so I think you'll have to wait to see the results of that, though. How how well they did there? Well, fantastic, and it's nice that you're giving people a chance to see this at the science festival. But this weekend, you have your big event, which is. Called called free-range chemistry. So you've said it's chemistry without the added chemicals. So uh, what is this about? OK, I think that uh, chemistry can get such bad press in the media, actually. Um, chemistry is really bad. Chemicals are even worse. Uh, and so I just wanted to show that actually, well, you know, everything around us uh, you know, is made of chemicals. We are made of chemicals. And this whole idea of sort of man-made is bad and natural is good, I just want to show that actually there's no sort of distinction between the two, really. And I want to do a lecture full of bangs and flashes, as usual, but uh, not using any chemicals in the sense of something that you buy in, only using um, completely natural materials. Now, this is is rather tricky because it means that we're having to extract certain things. Uh, For instance, I mean, we've got um, some deer antlers that we're distilling and we're making ammonium bicarbonate out of that, and then you can add alkali to this. Uh, and generate ammonia gas. And the alkali you generate by uh, either burning wood and getting wood ash or um, heating up chalk and so on. But all of the different uh, methods that we're using to obtain our chemicals, if you like, uh, we would just start in from natural materials. So is there anything that people need to know before they go in there or can somebody completely ignorant of chemistry go into your talk and really get a lot out of it? Uh, yep, it's suitable for all, actually. I mean, the idea is I, what I'm particularly aiming at is sort of, you know, the, the chemists of the future, the young chemists, and, uh, uh, you know, trying to uh, get them enthusiastic for the subject. Uh, but, yes, I mean, it's suitable for all the family, and I hope that uh, you may well learn some chemistry, but also you should find it very enjoyable as well. 
Well, fantastic. Well, by the sounds of both the big experiment and your talk here, you're very interested in getting young people excited about chemistry. Do you think that things like the Cambridge Science Festival help to do this? Oh, I mean, the Cambridge Science Festival, I mean, you can just tell by its popularity. I mean, the thousands of people that flock here each year, I mean, it's got to be doing something right, and there's got to be the interest there. And I think uh, people do want to learn more about science, and I think the Cambridge Science Festival provides a fantastic way uh, of doing this, really. That was Pete Wothers flying the flag for chemistry at the festival. Science in its element. The Cambridge Science Festival. Science is all about finding the answers to questions. So during these podcasts, we're going to try and answer some of yours. Today's festive question is from Sue Persclough. Is it true that the moon is gradually moving further away from the Earth? And if so, what effect will that have? And here's Naked Scientist Dave Ansell with the answer. Yes, the moon is moving further away from us. It's moving away at about 3.8 centimetres every year. The reason for that is all to do with the tides. The way the tides work is that the Earth is spinning faster than the Moon is orbiting it. The Moon's gravity pulls on on the water on the Earth, slowing it down and creating big bulges which make the tides. Now there's friction between these bulges of water and the Earth, um, which actually slows down the Earth's rotation. And because of Newton's laws, there's an equal and opposite reaction force on the Moon, which gives it more energy and speeds it up and makes the orbit get bigger and bigger. Now, will this have much of an effect? Well, the Moon will slowly get further away from the Earth. There's probably not enough energy in the Earth spinning to actually lose the Moon entirely. So make the tide slightly weaker. The bigger effect you probably would notice is that the day lengths are going to get longer because the Earth is slowing down as well. We can tell this that it has been slowing down in the past because if you look at ancient corals 400 million years ago, there were 400 days in a year. So the Moon is indeed moving further away from us. Now, testosterone is a hormone we usually associate with men. But it's found in women as well, just in smaller quantities. But Simon Baron-Cohen from the university's Autism Research Centre has been looking into testosterone levels in the womb and found some very interesting results. In the lecture last night, I was talking about our research, which is looking at the effect of a particular hormone, testosterone, produced by the foetus in just normal pregnancies... Um, and both boys and girls produce this hormone, and where we can measure the hormone during pregnancy in the amniotic fluid and then wait for the baby to be born and follow them up during their childhood to see if there's any relationship between your hormone levels in the womb and how you think, how you behave uh, in childhood. Most people associate testosterone with changes at puberty or with behaviour like aggression. But we've been interested in a very different aspect of testosterone because from animal research, we think that when this hormone is produced in early development, during fetal life, it may have different effects. It may affect um, sex differences in behaviour. And that's been seen in rats, for example, that if you give a female rat extra testosterone in the womb, it seems to masculinise her behaviour. But it also has an effect on the anatomy of the brain, that the female rats who've been given extra testosterone have a much more typical uh, pattern of uh, brain structure of a male rat. So the hormone is thought to have organising effects on brain development. And so how have you been testing this with humans? Well, we asked women who were having amniocentesis at the local maternity hospital if whilst they were having this um, fluid drained 
from their womb if we could have their consent to analyse it for hormone levels. So we were able to measure the hormone levels and then wait for the baby to be born and look at them at their first birthday, where we looked at their social development, at their second birthday, where we looked at their language development, And we've been following them now. The oldest child is now about eight or nine years old. So as they get older, we can do more interesting things with these children. But all the while, looking back at their hormone levels in the womb to see if the way they're behaving currently has anything to do with their hormones. So what did you notice? What we found was that the higher your fetal testosterone levels, so before you were born, the slower you are to develop language in toddlerhood and the less eye contact you make, again in toddlerhood. We measured these children's eye contact by just inviting them in to our lab in Trumpington Road, filming them whilst they were playing, and then looking at the videotapes to see how often does the child look up at their mother's face. And the surprise for us was that the amount of eye contact as an index of social behaviour was related to testosterone levels. And the same for language that you can count how many words a child knows or produces at their second birthday just by asking mothers to go through a checklist of vocabulary. What we found was that uh, that girls have a larger vocabulary than boys. That's something that's been known about for quite a long time, that girls develop language earlier than boys. But looking back to the testosterone levels... What it seemed to be was an inverse correlation. That means the higher your testosterone levels, the smaller your vocabulary at two years old. So that's regardless of gender. So if females have more words in general, the ones with higher testosterone had lower than the average for a girl. That's right. And we are finding these testosterone effects within each sex. So that means, in a way, you can ignore somebody's sex and just look at their hormone levels to make predictions about their rate of language or their quality of social development. So are those the main features you looked into, language and eye contact, or was anything else found as well? Well, as they've got older, we've looked at empathy, which relates to social development, but is all about being able to recognise other people's emotions. And we've also looked at something called systemizing, how interested people are in systems or patterns. And uh, what we found is a sort of opposite pattern of results. So the higher your fetal testosterone, the more difficulty the child has with empathy, but also the stronger their interests in systems of one kind or another, like computers or machines. And it's not that more testosterone is good or bad, it's just leading to different patterns of strengths and weaknesses. That was Simon Baron-Cohen from the University of Cambridge revealing the effect of testosterone levels in the womb on mental development. Now that's almost it for today's podcast, but here's festival organiser Nikki Buckley with a heads up on some of the things you can expect during the rest of the festival. This year we've got the theme The World of Science, so it's International Polar Year. We've got a life-size polar bear visiting us, and uh, that's a serious event there really because it's also about climate change, how polar bears are losing their habitats and how we could all be reducing our carbon emissions and saving the polar bear. We've also got a schools road show, so there are Cambridge University lecturers going to 50 schools throughout Cambridgeshire and they're doing hands-on workshops and having talks all geared to different uh, stages of the national curriculum. So that's it for today, but coming up in the next podcast, we find out how easily we can break our fossil fuel habit and investigate Venetian acoustics. 
I'm Mira Senthilingam, and this edition of the Cambridge Science Festival podcast was produced by thenakedscientists.com. Thank you.